You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, we are catching up on the latest in the financial reporting world as Adam and I sat down with Nicole Harger to dive into the debt and equity financing guidance under ASC 2020-6. As we'll hear in the episode, adoption for this is already underway for public companies and is just around the corner for private filers. While this update simplifies the accounting for debt and equity financing, sometimes the road to simplicity is paved with good intentions and maybe a little bit of complexity along the way. Adam and Nicole are here to help you start navigating that road. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage Richter and I'm joined by my co-host Adam Olson. And back for more, we have crowd favorite, Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Director. Now, y'all keep me up to date on what's relevant in the accounting world. So I thought maybe you could keep me up to date on what's relevant in the entertainment world. Do you have a movie, a TV show, or a podcast you would recommend? I'll let you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just recently finished Inventing Anna. Oh, I've heard about that that one. one, yeah. Oh, I know there's a new season of the Great British Baking Show about to start, Ooh. so uh, and I'm a fan of that, so I'll definitely uh, be keeping up with that one again. All right. I had to warm you up a little bit before <laughs> we dove into the, the meat of stuff. So today's topic is about the new guidance around debt and equity financing and ASU 2020-06. Maybe you turn that into a bingo game. How many times do you say that in this um, this is incredibly timely since public companies will be adopting this for Q1 2022. So let's jump into it. But before we get too far into the who, what, and when, Adam, can you talk quickly about why this is important for reporting entities? Uh, sure. And I think you helped kind of tease that out a little bit. So obviously for our public company listeners, those people that um, have to file Q1 financials coming up here, uh, 2006 will be effective for those entities that have instruments that are in the scope of some of the changes that were made um, that they'll need to look at in their first quarter. And so given the timing of this podcast, which is right after kind of the close of Q1 for most calendar year in companies, um, it definitely should be top of mind for those that are helping prepare those you know, Q1 statements. Um, for those that are on the non-public um, company list, you know, you have a little bit more time like with any other new standard, so it, it won't be effective there until 2024. Um, but it may be something to listen to and think about potential early adoption because the overall kind of, you know, theme or consensus we'll be talking about throughout this conversation today is really about helping make things easier, simpler, less complex. So I think that rings a lot of bells in people's heads like hey if i can make this easier for me you know maybe it's something worthwhile to bring forward um, earlier than later yeah i think that's really helpful to set the stage i know in past podcasts we've hit on that topic of simplifying existing complexities in u.s gap so what's the story on how this technical project came to light i guess the genesis of this is um so the actual technical project went on the FASB's agenda back in 2017 but it arrived there really from kind of some soul searching, I guess, from a, a subcommittee as part of the FASB. So it's the Financial Accounting Standards Advisory Council. And they really kind of 
um, reach out to stakeholders periodically, just kind of get feedback on how standards are working, not working, where people are having issues. And so part of that kind of periodic survey they did um, kind of brought to light just general complexity with, you know, distinguishing liabilities from equity and debt and equity financing in general. And so that was reported back to the FASB. They went again and did an official like consultation for their technical agenda and put those topics out there as items. And to no one's surprise, it came back on, you know, came back from respondents during the comment letter period that, yeah, we, we definitely would like to see something added to your agenda to look at this guidance because it has been, you know, pretty tricky to navigate. So is it fair to say the FASB issued this ASU really in response to trying to help repairs with this existing complexity? Yeah, you know, that's like I said, it's going to be the theme today. It's really about, you know, a lot of people got lost in the guidance. It is very convoluted. Um, We'll talk a bit about when we talk about some of the changes, some of the current guidance, and you'll kind of see why it could be such a, you know, a a web of um, accounting literature to get through. Uh, but really the complexity also led to just a lot of errors in, in applications. So, you know, which could obviously lead to restatements, revisions and financial statements, just as people are trying to understand and navigate the guidance and apply it to their different contracts and agreements. Um, and then, you know, one other real big reason too that came through kind of the, the feedback from stakeholders was that users of the financial statements didn't necessarily even find um, the accounting conclusions and presentation under the current guidance that useful. They weren't making any more meaningful decisions based on that guidance. And so it was almost like, are we doing all this extra work for whose benefit? Um, so, you know, kind of taking that into consideration, it, it really helped kind of catapult the, the FASB and to start looking at some revisions to the guidance. Okay, I think that's really helpful context as we get into the meat of this. So Nicole, let's move into the ASU itself. I know the ASU changed several areas of US GAAP Can you maybe touch on what areas are going to impact our listeners? I mean, if I'm listening to this, I might just tune it out if I don't have any convertible (laughs) instruments. um, uh, Would they still be impacted even if they don't have convertible instruments? Yeah, so first, um, the ASU really addressed three kind of key topics. The first is accounting for convertible instruments. So think convertible preferred stock, convertible debt. Um, The second is accounting for certain contracts in an entity's own equity. Uh, specifically applying the guidance in ASC 815-40. And then third, just certain aspects of EPS guidance. You know, to your point, while an entity may not have a convertible instrument today, uh, they may enter one down the line. And then also, you know, non-convertible financial instruments subject to ASC 815-40 are impacted by the changes in the equity guidance. Um, Lastly, public companies who report EPS measures will need to consider those changes um, and all entities will need to look at the additional disclosure requirements as a result of the new standard. So maybe just to help give our listeners a better understanding, we can take the convertible instrument changes and compare the current guidance um, to the new guidance that's coming up with the, the new ASU. Yep, so the existing guidance requires issuers of convertible instruments to apply one of five different models, depending on the terms of the instrument. Um, These five models were the embedded derivative model, the cash conversion feature model, the beneficial conversion feature or BCF model, 
the substantial premium model, and then no separation or single instrument model. The first four, four models, if in scope, um, required separate accounting for convertible features, and then it also had its own set of measurement guidance. Each of those models had to be evaluated in succession of the previous model was determined not to be in scope. So in other words, it was a very challenging and lengthy exercise. Um, given that, you know, it was often, the guidance was often kind of determined to be difficult as users were going through it. And users often view convertible instruments as a single instrument anyway in um, evaluating financial reporting. So the ASC ultimately limited two of the five models, the cash conversion features and the BCF model. Well, it sounds like a win to me, fewer things to sift through. So what happens for reporting entities who previously had one of these instruments accounted for under one of those old models, the two that we eliminated? Yep, so a reporting entity under those previous models would have had an equity component that was separately recognized. So in adoption of the new standard, the company would have to unwind that accounting. Um, in most cases, the convertible instrument will now just be accounted for as a single instrument or under the no separation model. I will caveat one thing to consider here. Um, in most cases, a reporting entity that had convertible debt probably did not assess whether the instrument was issued at a substantial premium or not. And so if that's the case, that model needs to be assessed first to make sure that there isn't a substantial premium in the instrument um, because that model still exists after the new ASU. So Adam, I noticed Nicole just specifically said convertible debt. Does convertible preferred stock need to be assessed as well under the substantial premium model? Yeah, that's a good catch. Um, and no, she's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the substantial premium model does only apply to convertible debt instruments, or if you happen to have a convertible preferred stock that was classified as a liability. Um, so if you've got equity classified um, preferred stock, it would not apply the substantial premium model. So if it if your equity classified preferred stock previously was subject to cash conversion or beneficial conversion, um, with those going away, you basically just end up with a single um, instrument, so just a basically a preferred stock. So I'm curious, why did they not just go ahead and eliminate the substantial premium model as well? Yeah, that, that's another good question. So um, originally it was actually part of the discussion. So they were actually looking to eliminate all three of those models and really just leave us with like the embedded derivative model or just a single instrument model. Um, and so that was on the table. Um, it was during the comment letter process, there was actually feedback that in certain circumstances, you could have a convertible debt instrument um, that was issued at a substantial premium that could ultimately give rise to net interest income versus interest expense. And so that accounting answer would just seem kind of wonky when you think about um, the context of um, the convert, or I'm sorry, the premium in the convertible instrument itself. Um, so to help avoid some of that accounting, they ultimately decided we'll leave the substantial premium model um, as one of the relevant models you still have to apply for, for convertible debt. So that's still on the table. I will say that of those uh, three old models, the substantial premium model is actually pretty easy to apply. There's really <laughs> very limited judgment that goes into it. You essentially have your your debt instrument that's issued at a par, and then any amount over that par amount is essentially just recorded as as that premium into APIC. There's really no other like 
valuations or big judgments you have to make um, there. So the guidance for applying that model, even though it is retained, is, is, is much easier than the two models that were eliminated. So I think that gives us a pretty good picture of changes to convertible instruments. So let's move to the second area where the ASU made some changes, which was contracts and an entity's own equity. I know the guidance for the own equity scope exception in ASCA 15-40 can be quite cumbersome, just like trying to say that out loud. <laughs> uh, so where did the FASB focus on making its changes? Yeah, so the, the final ASU changes are really focused on one particular area of the own equity guidance. Um, specifically, the ASU eliminated and clarified some of the requirements for a contract uh, or embedded derivative that is potentially settled in an ent entity's own shares and meeting the indexation guidance in order to be classified as equity. We love that word eliminated. Okay, so let's look at those requirements. For those who aren't familiar or haven't committed to memory the original requirements, like Adam probably has, can you walk through what reporting entities needed to do pre-ASU 2020-06? Yep, under current guidance, companies are required to use in reference ASC 815-40, like you said, um, in order to determine the appropriate classification for freestanding equity-linked instruments, as well as um, whether embedded equity-linked features that are not clearly and closely related must be bifurcated from their host and accounted for um, as liabilities. So in order for freestanding equity-linked instruments and equity-linked embedded features to be classified as equity, uh, there were seven criteria that had to be met. The first is settlement is permitted in unregistered shares. Um, an entity must have sufficient authorized and unissued shares. The contract must contain an explicit share limit. Uh, there's no required cash payment if an entity fails to timely file. There is no cash settled top off um, or make whole provisions. There's no counterparty that ranks higher than shareholder rights. And then lastly, no collateral is required. Yeah, and I would just add like that that list of seven requirements is really designed to like identify situations where um, an issuer might be required to cash settle a contract. So whether it's a freestanding equity linked instrument like a warrant, or if you've got an embedded feature like a conversion feature, um, like in a debt host, are there any circumstances where exercising those rights or contracts could require the company to have to pay cash. So it's looking for circumstances where, you know, they could fail to meet the share settlement requirement. Well, I got tired just hearing the list. So <laughs> I'm pretty glad to hear they're simplifying things and some of those are going away. So which ones are being eliminated? Yep. So three of those seven conditions were eliminated. The first is whether settlement is permitted in registered shares. Um, one thing to keep in mind on this one is that if the contract explicitly states that the entity must settle in cash if registered shares are unavailable, um, then this condition still applies. And then the next two conditions that were eliminated were the no counterparty ranks higher than shareholder rights and then no collateral is required. Um, there was also one condition that was clarified around penalty payments. So in regards to that, the ASU noted that penalty payments made upon an entity's failure to make timely SEC filings would not preclude equity classification. Um, overall, these conditions were viewed as some of the more complex to evaluate, and so we're, we're happy to see them go. 
So who's likely to benefit from these changes and what is the expected accounting outcome? Yeah, so like I said, reporting entities or if they've got a subsidiary that consolidates into them, um, you know, where they're the issuer of those types of instruments. So warrants, convertible instruments, other derivatives they may have on their own stock. Um, those are the entities that are going to be impacted because they would have had to go through this guidance. Um, you know, but like Nicole said, the the guidance really is helping eliminate how many of the more kind of gray areas that you have because it's mm -hmm. there is some like judgment in there a lot of times it, those it, conditions that were removed required a lot of like legal interpretation or um you know a real thorough analysis of the contracts and it, it, it could get pretty you know hairy trying to figure out yes or no on some of those um so as a result of taking those out we're likely to see just from a financial accounting and reporting perspective you know we're going to have less freestanding instruments that are, are going to be recognized at fair value or embedded derivatives um, being separated and recorded at fair value um, and having those fair value changes run through earnings. Um, so less activity there. And then also from just like an investor or counterparty perspective, if you think about it, you know, they kind of welcome these changes as well because, you know, they're able to still include those conditions in the contract themselves, but those conditions will no longer impact the accounting outcome. So they can still require collateral but mm -hmm. and protect them as an investor, um, but they don't have to worry about that impacting what the accounting might look like, for example. So we've talked a lot about the theory, but what should companies start doing if they have some of these types of contracts or embedded features? Yeah, so hopefully, um, if you are a public entity, you've been thinking about this standard, you know, kind of, you know, it's been issued now for almost um, a little less than two years, I guess. Um, but, you know, first thing is obviously looking at all your contracts um, or contracts that you know have embedded features where you've previously classified any of those um, either as an asset or liability or you bifurcated the embedded feature based on some of these provisions in the past. You know, one thing you need to keep in mind is that, you know, identifying those alone may not be the only step. There may have to also be more robust analysis that's performed. For example, if you if you evaluated a feature in the past and you determined it didn't meet the equity guidance because it met one of those conditions that have now been removed, but you stopped there because you knew it was going to fail, you may not have looked at the remaining conditions. So if the condition that originally failed is now off the table, you might still have to go back and look at the remaining conditions if you didn't previously evaluate those, just to make sure that there's nothing else in there that would trigger you um, to still have that um, or still require that contract to fail the equity guidance or the embedded feature to, to be a derivative. So what happens to these pre-existing instruments and features at adoption? Where could reporting entities maybe see like a trickle-down impact in their financial statements? Yeah, so if, you know, one of the conditions that you met has now been removed and, you know, so long as you meet the other remaining conditions, the accounting is basically going to be you, you no longer are going to have to separately measure that instrument you know, remeasure that instrument at fair value. Um, so if, you know, previously, if you had a liability classified warrant, for example, you had to mark that to market every reporting period. Same with a derivative, you have to mark that to market every reporting period. Um, so you would, you would essentially unwind any of that previous accounting through an adoption date um, kind of adjustment. So depending on whether you adjust, you know, as of the adoption date or back to the earliest period, you know, just kind of thinking about the periods impacted. Um, so unwind any of that previous accounting that was done. 
Um, one thing you also probably need to think about is that the change in classification on any of those freestanding instruments or embedded features, so it's now going you know, likely from a liability to equity, um, it could have an impact too on any previous discounts you may have recognized. So if you, for example, had a you know a, an embedded feature in a debt instrument that you separated as a as a derivative, you know you likely allocated some proceeds to the derivative, and that created a discount on your debt. Well, if you're removing that derivative now because it meets a scope exception, you're going to have to remove that discount, and so you're likely going to also have interest expense that needs to be unwound. Um, when you change interest expense, if you're a taxable entity also, you're likely to have some tax impacts there for some of your deferred tax balances. So also have to think about any tax impacts as well. So there are some like things you kind of have to navigate through the transition adoption period. But once you kind of get past that hurdle, I think then, you know, the requisite accounting is, is much, much easier. Okay, let's move into the third and final topic, earnings per share. What do our listeners need to know about earnings per share under this new ASU? Yep. So one of the main impacts the standard had on EPS is that uh, the treasury stock method can no longer be used to calculate deleted EPS for convertible instruments. Um, the next is that when an instrument does have a cash settlement option um, at the issuer's option, the effect of the potential share settlement has to be included in the entity's deleted EPS calculation. Um, under current guidance, an entity is allowed to rebut this presumption if it has a policy and a history of cash settlement. Um, therefore, this amendment does affect both the basic and diluted EPS calculations for convertible instruments and freestanding instruments that could result in cash or share settlement. Yeah, and one thing I'll caveat on the um, kind of the share settlement option. Um, is that it, that guidance um, does does not apply to certain liability classified share um, payment awards. So just kind of keep that in mind as well if you if you have any of those. And then there wasn't one additional change to EPS and it really relates to equity classified convertible preferred stock um, that has a down round feature. So previously that would have been captured by applying the BCF model, but now with that BCF model going away, um, any of those instruments that do have that down round feature are in, in the scope of that guidance um, would need to include that as well in their earnings per share calcs. So I assume the FASB will clarify some things in the pre-existing guidance when they issue a new standard, but is there anything else we need to add on the EPS front? Yep, so uh, the first thing they clarified was that an average market price uh, should be used to calculate diluted EPS the diluted EPS denominator um, in cases where the conversion rate or exercise price is variable. And then secondly, um, they clarified that an entity should use the weighted average share count from each quarter when calculating the year-to-date weighted average share count, except in cases where one of the quarters has a loss. All right, I think that covers our three targets. <laughs> and now we can transition into the effective dates and transition guidance. I know the ASU was originally issued back in 2020. Did we see many companies early adopt in 2021? Um, there were some companies that did, but it wasn't widely adopted. I think we, this was largely in part to many entities struggling with other complexities. So mm -hmm. both operationally and from an accounting perspective due to the ongoing pandemic. Um, I think some companies who hadn't looked at the transition guidance 
For this, ASU were surprised that they couldn't subsequently adopt in a later quarter in 2021. And when do private companies have to adopt by? Yep, so the amendments are effective for private companies um, beginning fiscal year 2024. Early adoption is allowed, but similar to public companies, it would have to be adopted as of the beginning of their fiscal year. All right, and can you briefly touch on the applicable adoption methods? Yep, so the board uh, decided to allow entities to either adopt using a modified retrospective method or a fully retrospective method. Um, under the modified retrospective method, entities will apply the, the new standard to financial instruments outstanding as of the beginning of the fiscal year of adoption. Um, and then the cumulative effect adjustment at the adoption date will be recognized in opening retained earnings. Um, if under this method, EPS amounts are not restated in prior periods presented. Um, opposite of that, so under the full retrospective method, entities apply the new standard impacts to financial instruments outstanding as of the beginning of the first comparative reporting period um, presented in their financial statements. And then under this method, um, EPS for all periods presented is restated. And does the FASB intend to look at any other additional topics within the debt and equity financing space? I think I heard there was a potential phase two ongoing. Adam, can you talk about what that might entail? Yeah, so you'd be correct. There is actually a phase two. It was actually originally contemplated in phase one, but there was they weren't in agreement particularly on what all the changes would be related to what now is kind of going into phase two. Um, so to not hold up the release of phase one of the project, they decided to separate it um, and issue ASU 2020-06. But uh, phase two is on the current technical agenda um, and it is still also looking at kind of the own equity guidance, you know, distinguishing liabilities from equity. Um, and really focusing in on what's kind of known as the in indexation guidance within um, 815.40. And so there's really kind of two parts of that indexation guidance that you have to kind of walk through. So um, step one is evaluating contingent exercise provisions and step two is evaluating you know, settlement provisions and certain nuances in there can cause you to fail indexation. And there's some, again, complexity. And that's the reason it's, you know, being you know looked at much more closely um, that they're, they're trying to figure out, is there a better path forward? So they had their most recent meeting on this back in February of this year and kind of narrowed down the scope of what types of instruments would be, what a, this guidance apply to. And then they also kind of put out directives to the FASB staff to really start to develop some alternatives for the guidance. Um, so that's kind of where it stands right now. Obviously they'll do that, probably have some more board discussions back and forth and eventually issue an exposure draft on that. That'll that'll get reviewed for comments from, from the likes of preparers and accounting firms and et cetera. So we'll, we'll see where this kind of heads, but you know, definitely keep an eye on it if it's, uh, you know, this topic's of interest to you or it impacts you. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop our conversation for today. Sounds like a little bit of short-term pain for some long-term sure. pain. We yeah. love lifting complexities in ASC 2020-06. If you counted, let me know. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for enlightening me and all of our listeners and keeping us up to date on the relevant accounting matters. And thank you for following along on another episode. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.